Hello, I'm your host, Gillian Semler. You're listening to Let's Talk, brought to you by Citilets and Arla Property Mart Scotland. Let's Talk is a dedicated property show for the world of property letting, investment, legislation, personal stories and much more. If you want to get in touch, just reach out. Let's Talk at citilets.co.uk. Joining me today are two crew from the Scottish team five in a row that competed in the recent Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge and sponsored by Citylets. Morning Clive and Ross. Morning Gillian, how are you doing? I'm Morning, good, Jillian. thank you. And yourselves? Yeah, good, thank you, good. Good. Especially we've all escaped Covid but we haven't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we're over it. We're over it, yeah. Well, firstly, huge congratulations and well done for not only completing the row across the Atlantic but coming in third and you set a record. You set the second fastest record for five-person crew in history. Yeah. Wow. I think actually if we had said we were going to come in the top 10, whenever we set out, we would have all shaken our hands yeah. and taken it. So I think we surprised ourselves actually with how well we did. And I think a lot surprised a lot of other people as well. It's incredible, incredible. So well done. So, I mean, describe the feelings when you started to row towards Nelson's Harbour in Antigua. Oh, um... Yeah, at, at that point, I think we hadn't seen anyone for mm -hmm. so long at sea, and then you know to suddenly be faced with you know the land that comes up all of a sudden. Uh, I think it was at dawn. Uh, Duncan came bursting out of the cabin <laughs> about dawn for a shift change. He went, guys, guys, look, look, look behind you, because we all have our backs to Antigua. And yeah, sure enough, it was rising out of the sea, and uh, we weren't that far away. We still had about fifteen miles to go, but uh, we were. I just remember that feeling was amazing just to finally see a bit of land. And then as we approached uh, getting closer and closer, it took a while to find the cove, or the, oh, where, the, okay. where the harbour was, and then eventually it opened up and we were met with- You don't miss that. You don't <laughs> miss that. But a sea of boats and people shouting and horns going and flares and things. Yeah, it was just it was, was that your family up in the cliff? Because I could see yeah. photos you were turning fort, around to yeah. this. Yeah, was it a fort, it's was a fort, it? Uh -huh. fort there, and that's where they were all watching us at the finish line, uh, cheering. and buying things and all sorts of things. Yeah, that's an incredible feeling. Uh, if you could buy or bottle that yeah. atmosphere, actually, yeah. it was just incredible. Like, and the, I just the emotion of it as well. Like, you know that you're, like, luckily all of our families were able to travel out with Good. kids and everything. Brilliant. And we knew they were all there and it was amazing. And like, as soon as we were turning around, just as Ross was saying, like, everybody who sees you is shouting. Oh. Because it's like they, they they're either following the race or know something about it because of having been in English Harbour. Um, yeah, and it's just a, a cacophony of noise. And then the the super yachts, so like in English Harbour, there's like all these like massive 100 foot yachts sort of thing. They all blew their foghorns. Oh, wow. And you can really feel it actually, yeah. like hitting you in the chest Gosh. because of the noise. Uh, and it's just amazing. It was like that, the arrival was definitely one of the, the high points. Of Fantastic. I mean, because rowing tours on and tours off in a repetitive cycle of eat, sleep, well, trying to, <laughs> this is very difficulty with, row, repeat for five weeks sounds like the ultimate mental and physical challenge. So for the first part of the podcast, I'd like to talk about the mental challenges involved. So what struggles did some or all of you face and at what stage did you start to experience these feelings? I think, well, I can probably tell you about the lowest point because that really sticks out in the valley for most. Um, the lowest point for me was definitely Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Oh, was it? Just, you felt so far away from home. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and you know the rhythm or the routine of what's going on at home in terms of like kids and putting out their stockings and stuff like that. I felt very, very far away. And I think 
um, Doug did as well. We were on a shift at Crit One at Christmas Eve, and I, I don't think we rode very much actually because it was it was quite windy. Oh. So we were being pushed along. We were going the right direction, but did it all we talked about? What would your family do? And so it was quite a low ebb, I think. Yeah. And at that point, we were, I think maybe back in seventh, or eighth, or ninth position as well in the fleet. So that so was quite demoralising as well, and we felt as if like we weren't performing as well as we should do. Um, yeah, and I'm certainly, I think, a, a low point anyway for yeah. the road crossing. Certainly for me, I think it's a low point. And especially with the size yeah. of tree you were carrying on board. Well, <laughs> I didn't yeah, notice exactly. that. I was determined to see oh, what yeah. it was, was the well, Christmas we aspect. Uh, a little uh, six inch uh, <laughs> plastic tree. Um, we stuck that on. We thought it might be extra windage uh, <laughs> in terms of like blowing it. You know, we'd be extra catch. Um, yeah. But it was like, that was the only. Well, we did have these. Santa hats as well, but that was the only sign of Christmas really on the boat. Oh. Yeah, it was lasted about 20 minutes, I think, Christmas. And we stopped and everything, <laughs> put our hats on and uh, just sort of wished each other. That was it, we just like a feast right turkey dinner. <laughs> no, not even that. It was like we literally exchanged pleasantries for, I think, oh, 15 really? minutes uh, in the evening, and that, and that was Christmas. Uh -huh. done. So, um, any other kind of really difficult Parts where I mean, the first week is obviously hard to until you get into a rhythm of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's very hard in training to replicate anything yeah. like what it's going to be uh, like the conditions at sea. So uh, I guess it took the best part of the first week to really get on, get into it, get into that sleeping pattern as well, yeah. and get used to the nights. I can remember being on the worst one night. And uh, Fraser, I think it was Fraser, said to me, "So how long have you been on here?" And I couldn't tell him. I have no idea how long I've been on the worst. I was so tired and just not with it at all because I always falling asleep on the horse and you go yeah you need to get you need a rest yeah but you know there was there was points like that it was just say yeah this is, this is how long is this gonna last but then we got past it and um, I think maybe about the week the week mark and the seasickness kind of stopped a bit and we started feeling a little bit better oh, yeah I was gonna ask about that so, later actually were you all did you all experience seasickness then I I was sick one night but it was more I think through exhaustion honestly because I just mm. hadn't slept at all during the day. Mm. And, uh, but we didn't, we weren't struck down with somebody like a prolonged period. I think we all had a bit uh, of a feeling rough sensation mm -hmm. in the first week or so. But like, if you look at other crews, uh, emergency duo who were a husband and wife doing it, I think that husband was, um, he was like sick for really 10 days, mm -hmm. constantly sick. Like, so, wife, are they still married? I think they are actually, yeah, <laughs> they, they uh, did very well. Um, but uh, yeah, I, like we were relatively lucky. We um, medicated as well <laughs> before we started, and I think at the start of the race as well, just to try and uh, stop getting sick. Yeah. Um, because it can be completely debilitating. And then you've got to then shift to looking after somebody as well as trying to look after yourself. Mm -hmm. So we were trying, very conscious of it, trying yeah. uh, not getting sick. And did you ever, especially at the beginning, have a sense of, did anyone experience almost like a sense of panic as in, oh my goodness, this, you know, we are doing this for five weeks, roughly, you know, that kind of... Day one, and night one, you. I thought night one, I was like, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. Because we're in, whenever you come out of Lagomera, you're in the lee of Lagomera itself, and that probably took us like through to the evening time to shake off that, and then we're into the lee of uh, El Hero, which is another island. And the waves at that, that night were chopping up and down from every direction. And there was a couple of, we could see a couple of other boats and the Aussie guys, Sean partners, they sped past us. Oh. Like, cut an angle behind us and we were like, 
how are those guys so fast in comparison to us? Um, and uh, I remember, I think I almost fell overboard actually, it was night one or night two as well. And I was actually going to ask you about that later because you know I read with some of your posts that you know during the night there's you know storm with high waves and you've been knocked off your seat. So I know you were strapped onto the boat, but how you know how possible was it for somebody to be actually it, swept overboard at night? And, and then obviously how would you find the boat? Uh, it was really the, the night that actually the night I nearly fell over was I think it was the first night and um, it was a shift change and we we're trying to. <laughs> dance past each other to get to the seat and I literally just lost my balance mm -hmm. and dunk grabbed me by the chest by my chest and pulled me back in again. Um, but that said we were always a tethered on so if we had a fall over like you would only really fall four or five feet in terms right. of away from the boat. We were really hard on each other in terms of like there was no excuses if you weren't tethered on for whatever reason it was you need to get yourself tethered on, mm -hmm. stop now, get uh, clipped on mm -hmm. because there's it's like you in a boat moving three or four knots, by the time you realise somebody is overboard, mm -hmm. they're ten meters away, and like you, the chances of getting the boat then turned and going back to pick them up again is quite small. Mm -hmm. So and we were really always drifted in that time and yeah. things. Yeah, and it, we we lost what did we was it was a sponge I, or a water bottle or something? I overboard? lost a water bottle in one of the oh first no. early few days. Well, it too, went too, but yeah. so. But I remember it disappearing so fast. Yeah. As soon as it was gone, uh, overboard, there's no catching it or reaching over for it. It was just, and then it was, you know, 10, so 20 meters gone. Mm -hmm. And so then, if that had been a person, it'd be, yeah, there's no way you would have got back in time. So. And the movement of the waves as well, that you do side of the, like, because you're only, what, a foot out of water sort of thing in terms of them. So, yeah. You can't see over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, like, so, like, I think to your question about, yeah, the first night was definitely a, realization yeah we're doing this for a long time mm -hmm. and this is not anything like we've trained in before <laughs> it's a realization point on it I mean, yeah. you had sessions with a coach to prepare you mentally so in what specific ways did they help and, and did you encounter any emotions that you weren't necessarily necessarily prepared for or imagined I think um so Katie prepared us in terms of like trying to set we've moved to try and set goals for the day um and I think, to be honest, we actually lost sight of that probably in the first week or so, where we were being a bit lazy because like, it took five minutes to do a, a, like we used to try and do a morning meeting where we'd like air any grievances or just set the tone for what's going to happen during the day. And to do that, we'd lose maybe 10 minutes sleep. Right. So we were just like, oh, let's not do it. And I think we lost sight of sometimes setting goals for the day. And maybe that's why especially in those first 10 days, I think we were, we were in danger of just completing the race rather than actually competing properly. Right, okay. And, but I think we then shifted our mindset, like in terms of, we got ourselves, caught ourselves on in terms of, we've got to try and set small goals for every day. Like in terms of like, it wasn't just about distance, it was like, let's have success, like fast changeovers, at, um, or let's try and make sure we uh, row consistently or, you know, no mistakes whilst rowing and stuff like that. So it was, there was something to actually aim for rather than something 3,000 miles away, which yeah. if you a think- A long period of time away. Yeah, it just seems so far away, actually. Mm -hmm. I read that Ian has said there were lots of times when we would put our sunglasses on and have a wee cry while we were rowing. So, I mean, how did you support each other when members of the crew were struggling? Yeah, I think it was, yeah, I think, I don't think anyone, we weren't all in a low place at the same time. Good. So I think that it was good that, you know, there's always somebody there to sort of 
you know, pump your tires up, as Duncan likes to say, uh, <laughs> and keep you going, you know, and just, if it's just having a word or you're having a chat, mm -hmm. I think we found at times, it's quite noisy on the boat as well, uh, with the, the noise of the, the waves, the noise of the oars, it's actually quite difficult to have conversations sometimes on the deck, and the people at the back can't hear what's happening at the front of the boat mm -hmm. and things, but the times that we took the time to have a little chat, to see how people were, or go up to the other end of the boat and have a chat to someone, it actually made a big difference to just boost morale and you know, just get get everyone sort of uh, geared up again for the day. I think yeah. it's just too easy to just drift along into, you know, to the routine. Uh, you need to break it up and change it every now and again just to just to you know keep everyone going. Yeah. I think that's good that you weren't all at the same time. Did mm -hmm. you hear of other crews where, or maybe from past experiences, where you know maybe crews have struggled all together at the same time? And you know, how many people actually give up? Uh, no, sorry, I don't think that many people, well actually this year I see one person gave up after night one, he fell, and uh, it was a single, um, but he fell and hurt his arm and that was him one of the race. Um, I think the, we had said at the very start, one of our main goals personally amongst our, as a crew was to just, one, to get to Antigua safely and two, just to remain friends. And I think that really uh, kept us actually focused on the fact that someday somebody will have been on a high, someday they'll be on a low. Let's just be a bit sympathetic to each other. Let's not be hard on each other for if somebody has a bad shift or a bad day, just let it go. Don't uh, don't focus on it, you know, focus on the positives rather than, you know, something that's maybe not how you would like to do it or um, in terms of like, you know, what you want to get out of the room that day. I think we were, I think we were pretty good actually at being sympathetic to each mm -hmm. other and understanding that we wouldn't all be on a high all the time mm -hmm. and there would be low periods for different people for different reasons. And what about what effect did um, having contact with home have on you all? How much contact did you have with home? We could have probably as much as you wanted in a way because we did have um, email um, connectivity on the boat and we also had you know the satellite phone so we could make contact and speak to people at home. Now, Sometimes it was nice because you needed that sort of reassurance that there's what's happening and understand what's happening at home. At the same time, it makes you feel so so far away from everyone as well. So it could have that negative effect at the same time. So I think we all kind of balanced it that we didn't contact home too regularly. Um, but it, it, we did need it, I think, every now and again. And it, there was little things like just finding out how the you know, the Just Giving site was doing things yes. like that. And that gave us a massive boost, you know, to hear that, so those sorts of messages from home. And the fact that the whole town and, you know, and further afield was getting behind our, our challenge and the campaign. And, you know, all the messages, support and things that we were getting was, you know, that was a huge boost to us. So th those sorts of things were, it was great, you know, mm -hmm. to hear that kind of kept us going. I can't what, imagine what 10 years ago when there was, we didn't have any communications yeah. like that. And so isolated. Really isolated, you know. So. What about for your children? Most of you, I think, about from Fraser, children. So how was it for them when they, so, you know, on the other side, for home and for the children after they spoke to you? And how did they cope with you all being away? Uh, I think it was different for each of our families. I think my boys actually were a bit high. <laughs> How's it going? I'm still rowing. How's school? How's home? Good, good. Do you want to know anything? No, that was it. It was like, I think because um, I tried to prep them for the fact that we were going to be away, yeah. they were sort of, I think, just like, well, you're out of sight, so we don't really want to, like, they were quite happy to engage in what we we're doing or have a chat, but they were quite happy, I think, in a way as well. Um, because I know 
my wife Charlotte was amazing in terms of like trying to make sure Christmas happens, navigating what was going on with COVID at the time, yeah. and then obviously trying to make sure that they were stayed COVID free to get out to the finish line as well. So it was quite stressful for her. It was probably more stressful for her than any of the rest of, uh, of us, for us even have been on the boat. Um, and yeah, it meant that the, yeah, I think the kids just got on with it. They're, you know, kids are resilient. They are. They, you know, it's just accept what's in front of them rather than wishing uh, wishing away or, you know, in terms of trying to um, wish us home again in a way. So I, I think they were quite all right. Same, Ross. Um, let's talk about the physical effects. You were talking earlier about seasickness. What other kind of physical effects? Um, because obviously, enduring something physically for this length of time, we challenge even the most professional athletes. So what physical sufferings did you all experience and which ones specifically made things much harder to endure? I think, well, certainly in the early stages, it was mostly our hands that were the problem. You know, blisters and sores like... Um, I think Ian had an infection in his finger for a while, yeah. things like that at the beginning, which wasn't great. But then as the race developed, it wasn't like all the big muscle groups and things. Yeah, you were tired, you were fatigued and all that, but you were able to, your body got used to it. But then I think most of us found just sitting down became really painful. You know, right. our bums and things and having mm -hmm. that contact with the seat constantly. Uh, even if you went rowing, it was painful sometimes. Gosh. So we were, you know, we were trying to... I ended up carving different seats and things to try and sit on and try and improve, you know, the situation. But at the end, it was yeah, it was painkillers and things just to get us through it. It was so remember the, the, the painkiller amnesty, right? How many painkillers yeah. are on the boat right now? <laughs> how many drugs uh, have we got? No, no, how much have we got left? And there was uh, not very much. Uh, and then I found a, a, a sheet of like quite strong painkillers, and it was like almost like a. A glory you moment. Hide them to yourself. <laughs> I know, actually, of course it did. Uh, we, but it was literally like, right, well, we've got enough now to see us through to the end of the race because mm. I was definitely using them every day for like the really? last ten days because I just could not say I. I get to a point of like forty minutes into the two-hour set or ninety minutes, whatever we're doing at the time, and I would either go to extremely painful or go numb, and you're always hoping for numbness because mm. <laughs> then you can carry on without thinking about it. But it was really, and there's nowhere on that boat you can sit without having to prop yourself up. So like sitting in a seat with your legs dangled below you, that, there's nowhere on the boat where you can sit like that. Mm -hmm. And that's, I certainly, it was just, I remember just craving a seat where I didn't have to feel the effort of sitting. Yeah, just on the cushion. Yeah, yeah. when we got to Antigua actually, they take you in to um, have your first meal and uh, can <laughs> I stand for it? No, no, no. They, they, they have these the most pristine pillows on the seat for you to sit down on, and it is honest. It was honestly one of the highlights of getting over the line. Always just sitting on this pillow, and be like, oh, this is so nice. I don't have to think about sitting. It's comfortable. You know, they're clearly well schooled in terms of for their rivals. And what did it take for these kind of physical effects to actually? disappear to go. I think it's different. I'm still, um, I've still got the effects of my hands are still quite sore in the mornings because there's like a tendon, a tendon trouble. Mm -hmm. But I think everyone had it initially, but some, I think some people have now I've got it. I've still got a little bit of problem yeah. with one of my fingers as well. Have it's not you? quite settled down yet. It can take a few weeks or it can take a few months. What about the balance? Because I remember from the gap year I worked on boats for a year and it took me a long time. It was when I went to sit down and it would not me, me and I had that for about a, a good six months after. Oh, no, probably for about the first week I was yeah. still swaying about. Um, mm -hmm. 
I remember, you know, getting up and out of bed in the morning and trying to walk across the river. You were yeah. like, could it go and zigzagging across. Um, so that took a little while to get over, mm. but I think after that, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, I was right there. Four or five days, I was back to normal in terms of my balance side of things, but I just had no strength. Mm -hmm. I remember trying to run up a set of stairs. And I was like, my head was doing telling me to run, but my legs were just, there's no muscle. Like we lost quite a lot of weight and most of that was muscle wastage. Yeah, I was about to ask that, I mean, how difficult was it to keep up the required intake of calories of, of freeze-dried food? And also, you know, how was the effect on the systems, you know, for taking kind of freeze-dried food for such a long time? I think the first couple of weeks it seemed fine because everything was like, I know, new in a way, like it was different flavours that we hadn't tried in training and stuff like that. But after that, I really struggled with it. Like just the stodginess and heaviness of the meals. It was like, you know, they're 700 or 1,000 calories in each meal. They're trying to just, and you're literally just trying to force it down. And uh, I really, and after that, I was like maybe down to, I know, two or three meals a day. And I was hoovering snack packs, which had like nuts and chocolate and, Scampy fries, and it? I saw that. Uh, yeah, your secret weapon. Honestly, tell me, if you could just know how much slagging I took about putting scampy fries in the snack packs, and how I was like, oh, the scampy fries been weighing down. Um, but they were actually probably one of the best, well, for me, it was the best bits of the snack packs. I just thought of your family's on arrival, they've not seen you for ages. You probably had a shower of things for weeks, and then you've had scampy fries for the last few days, so you get right back in. Uh -huh. just, I, I certainly, I know that we certainly were not, I don't think we ate anywhere near the required amount of the meter. No, I don't think we could, there was, was so much and yeah, as you say, the flavours and stuff, we just got sick of them to be honest, I couldn't face another pasta bolognese after a while, <laughs> there was so many of them. The kids at home have said to me, oh, can we give cook risotto some of that? And I was like, no, <laughs> we're not having risotto because that is exactly the same texture as every meal we had on the board for five weeks. I don't think I could eat risotto over again. <laughs> So what did you have for your first meal when you were sitting in your lovely pillows? Uh, they have, they're ready for your burger and chips. Oh. Burger, chips, a few beers, some more chips and... Some more beers. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much it. No. Um, but yeah, it was quite, it was nice actually to have uh, the sensation of uh, flavour again, like proper flavour. I remember I didn't really, uh, for the first few days of being back, all I wanted was sugary drinks. Like, which I didn't really drink, like Coke and ginger beer and stuff like that because of the, just the, the flavour and the sensation of bubbles or something. Yeah. Um, I found it really satisfying because we just did not had anything like that. That's yeah. We did the same, Ross. Yeah, no, it was, more, it was just getting back to having fresh food and stuff that mm -hmm. I wanted. Yeah, you know, fruits and things like that. It was just like, oh, amazing. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like that for so long. You really appreciate it. You know, we well, let's talk about the boat because did you experience many issues or malfunctions of the boat and, and how did you deal with them? So, you know, I think we had a fairly incident free crossing actually with regard yeah. to it. We had a bit of trouble with our auto helm, which is what actually steers the boat. Like you put a bearing yeah. into it and then it sort of steers it on that bearing. And that it was slightly off um, in terms of how many degrees it was off. But as soon as we worked that out and then accounted for it, that was fine. We had a couple of fuses went on the boat and... Yeah, we had to tighten up a bolt one night and that yeah. was on a loose oar, that was our oar lock, so... But other than that... Is that, that quite rare, can be each other cruise? 
I think so. Well, no, maybe not rare, but um, certainly lesser prepared crews maybe have more trouble with the boat in terms of managing their batteries or uh, the water maker, which is such an essential piece of kit like for a, to keep. Um, mm. But we, I think because we'd spent so much time prepping the boat and stripped everything back and then rebuilt it again pretty much in the boat, we all knew the systems really well. So, and we were quite careful about how and had a lot of respect for the Farrell boat. And mm -hmm. um, I think actually it just meant that we were able to get across without any problems. Because I read that barnacles can slow you down and you had to clean the boat every so often. So tell us about the required maintenance of the boat. Yeah, it was probably a, roughly about once a week, so maybe a bit more regularly than that, we get out and, and get into the water and clean off anything that's sort of attached itself to the bottom of the boat. And there's a lot of slimy stuff that barnacles would form as well. Um, and apparently they can maybe add half a knot to your to your uh, speed by cleaning right. the boat. So 12 <clears throat> miles in the day, that's quite quite a bit it that you can add to it. So it's worth doing. And it was a nice feeling actually to jump off the boat. Uh, I remember when the first time I jumped off, I'm going, I forgot what the outside of the boat looked like. Oh, you know, yeah. It had been that long since I'd seen it. But it's great, you know, the, the feeling of just being in the, in the ocean and there's, uh, you know, at the deepest point, I think about um, eight kilometers of water below you. So uh, it's quite, Incredible. Quite, a, quite a feeling to be out there. And, uh, because the scenery and wildlife that you, you would have seen must have been breathtaking. And yeah. did you have a shark? Did somebody have a shark? Yeah, well, them we've seen quite a few sharks actually. But, um, we saw a shark. I, I tell you, we left after leaving Lagomero, we saw pilot wheels within a few hours. Oh. And I think we were all like, Huh, well, this is going to break up the monotony of it, like, you know, uh, pilot wheels in the first few hours. Oh. And then I think the first, um, after a couple of days, we saw. Um, dolphins, and in fact, uh, Dunk and Fraser jumped in and swam with them because oh. they were right up beside the boat, like literally looking at us. And I think I really wish I'd done it as well at that time because I thought it was a bit blase. I think, oh, well, this is, you know, if this happened so quickly, it'll happen again, but unfortunately, it didn't. Oh, happen. No. But, um, but yeah, in terms of talking about scraping the bottom of the boat, the last time we scraped the bottom of the boat, a shark came in and circled the boat about 40 minutes or an hour later. And we all decided that was the last time we were screaming. Just what happened at that stage yeah, of the journey. Like, what type of shark? Then? I don't know. What it was. Um, uh, I'm not sure what type yeah. it was, but it was probably but it was pretty big. It was a decent size. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, and everyone's like, <laughs> we're not, we're not doing the bottom of the boat again. That's it. We're done yeah. with that. Yeah, because it was so close. Well, we've talked about the continual mental and physical challenges you all endured. So let's talk about the charity you were raising funds for, which is Rett Syndrome. And Ross, your daughter um, has this condition, so she faces the utmost challenges mm -hmm. on a daily Gosh, basis. So tell us a bit more. Yeah, our daughter Eliza, she's now 10. So she's uh, got Rett Syndrome, and she, um, which is a condition that she was, well, she was born with, but you don't realise that she has it until maybe 18 months or so. Uh, so she's not able to walk particularly well. She needs a lot of help with feeding and you know all sort of day-to-day -day sort of uh, living things. Um, and she has now has um, epilepsy as well, so she's got that to contend with. So yeah, and there's breathing irregular irregularities as well with her condition. So it's, yeah, it's quite it's a lot of challenges with it. Um, so the charity that we're we've been supporting, Reverse Ray, um, are looking at medical research and, and treatments for people um, that suffer with, with Rett syndrome. So it's, there's lots of work happening here in Edinburgh at the university uh, and further afield in London and all over the world to be honest. So um, the, the work that, 
the, the, the funds that we're providing will go towards some of that, that work, which is amazing. Because so. I think we talked in early podcasts that I've read that because they have managed to reverse it when they were testing it's the traps, is that right? That's right, it was reversed probably, oh, about 12 years ago or so now uh, in a mouse model. So it's been proven that it can be done, uh, but it's now a case of trying to get that to clinical trials in humans and there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of red tape and things to go through before we get to that stage, but that's getting quite close. Good. We are waiting just to hear when that might happen. So, so there's really is something is not too far away um, uh, on the horizon, which would be great, you know, if we can, whether that will be the ultimate, you know, treatment or whether it will just alleviate symptoms, we don't know yet, but uh, it'd be amazing if anything would be a great improvement Indeed. for Eliza. So. Absolutely, and you raised an amazing amount. So, what was your final total? And I think you're still raising, aren't you? Because you had an event, was it recently in the Marine, or is that still? Uh, we still do, yeah. Oh, right, well, you can maybe yeah. mention that just now. Uh, I think our final total will be around 130 or 135,000. Oh, that's incredible. Well yeah. done, well done. It's incredible, yeah. It's way more than we thought was going to yeah. be possible, particularly, you know, the. the so what was your target well. originally? Uh, we tend to try to um, hit 100, including the seal of the boat and everything. But I think we were at that stage, we were like, well, for aspire to that, but who knows? We'll, I don't think we'll get there. But the Just Giving site really took off during when we left. Like, we'd set that originally for 10,000. Yeah. And then we're like, oh, we'll up it to 15 or 20, wasn't I it? think we'd reached 10,000 before we even left Lag Yeah. So, <laughs> so wow. we thought we'd better re realize yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's and amazing. as Rob was saying, like, it was such a wee boost to hear. Because we'd actually do it as a guessing game, right? Right. If somebody found out, it'd be like, right, what's the just giving total lap? Um, and then it would know, be a bit of fun in terms of the guessing of it. But it would always be a boost. Like, ah, oh, so many people are backing us. Oh, and and that's it really is incredible. And you've got another event coming up at the Marine Hotel. Do you want to just say yeah, about so that? Yeah, so on the 30th, we're doing like a Q&A in the Marine Hotel in North Berwick. Um, it's a way actually to try and engage all the people who were followed us during the race and for them to have a to hear a bit about a bit more about it so if anyone would like to come along there's still tickets available for it brilliant what time is it on 7 30 and you can find out more information from our instagram or facebook we've got a post up and if you go to our website you'll find out more information about it which is um www.fivemineroad.co.uk five f-i-v-e rather than the uh, number perfect um, now Ian said quite a powerful statement at the end of the race. He said it was so tough and wild horses wouldn't make me ever do it again. Would any of you contemplate doing it again? I don't think so. <laughs> I see Ross already <laughs> shaking his head before he answers. I think, um, I would, I, it's not that I wouldn't want to do the rowing again. Like, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the whole thing in terms of like getting to the start line and doing the actual race itself. But it's a huge investment in terms of time. It took us two years to do it. Like mm -hmm. by the time we, from first entering to finishing. And I think to then say, well, we're going to do it again and do another two years of investment. I think we'd want to do something different um, rather than another ocean road. So, and that's really the reason, rather that I hated it every second of it or anything like that. I just, I don't, I don't think I'd want to invest the time to do the same thing again. So do you have? Plans, oh, no. any or all of you. <laughs> Not at the moment. I I'm so far out of brownie points at home oh. that I don't <laughs> think my wife would to make up for exactly. That. I don't think my wife would um, allow me to do do anything. Um, and it will not anytime soon anyway. <laughs> the wives that are planning a, a five week holiday together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That said, Fraser, I think we do it. Uh, would he? Yeah. Gosh. But he's at a different stage of life in terms of like um, 
He's commitments. Got, yeah, he's got very well. He's got commitments, but not um, the same family commitments. So mm-hmm. I think he's a bit more uh, flexible in terms of um, him being able to do it. Because he has muted like oh, about doing the Pacific, which is another race that Amanda campaigns sort of starts to run. Um, but I don't think I'll be doing that. No, the shaking no. of the head. Well, I mean, I mean, just over five weeks rowing the Atlantic would give each of you plenty of time to self-reflect on your individual selves, um, your lives, and what you want from it. So what were the main things that you each took from this experience and the others too? What do you think? Um, and, and we, we've had a few chats about this, and I, think of, I don't think it was like a life-changing event, right. but it made you think a lot more about your, the life you have and, what, and what's important to you. Um, I think it's, it's so much time to think when you're on the boat and <laughs> you analyse everything, every part of your life and things. And, you could, uh, and I, I think it was more, for me, it was about family and things. Right. And, and, you know, I, I think it was like Clive said, we spent two years in this campaign and this whole project and the families have suffered quite a lot during that period. And uh, for me, it was just thinking, right, I need to readdress that and just spend a lot more time with them and, you know, the, working on the things that matter, really. Yeah and trying to cut out all this stuff that doesn't matter so much in your life. So. And what about you, Clive? Uh, I'd say quite similar, actually. I think there are some people who do the race because they're at a point in their life that they're fed up with the, I don't know, the monotony of their work or something like that, and they go searching for a life-changing event. And they come back probably with a new life plan and try to make that happen. Whereas I don't think any of us were really in that headspace of like trying to search for a life-changing event. So I don't think it was, it was or was ever going to be life-changing. It was more about, well, certainly for me, it was more about like sort of the competition of it and actually this this the completion of it. Um, but yeah, I think there's yeah, as Ross said, like the amount of time you just have to to think, you think things to death uh, almost. Um, <laughs> But I certainly, yeah, I don't have a come away where I'm not going to like change my job next week or we're all up sticks and moving to yeah. uh, Iceland or something like that. You know, it's not, there's nothing like that. It's more, I think, just about reflection of the, you know, what's important in life, is what Ross was saying. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's true for everybody, or certainly in our book. Other crews, actually, like I know another crew who came in about the same time as us and they were all adamant that they were changing their jobs as soon as they got back and making, really? they had almost plotted out. Um, on the trip as to how they were going to do it. Gosh, I have to say I was even more impressed when we read who you came in, when you came in third and you were like basically kind of alongside there was what RAF pilots and then the other ones were the Swiss, Swiss, well, Swiss Army as I mentioned. Yeah, so it's well, Swiss Royal Swiss Royal who That's won the race it, yeah. um, overall. And yeah, and like we were. And what were so they again? Weren't they? They were mil. Were they military? I think they're ex-military. Or something yeah. But they, I can only find out afterwards. They spent like two years training, like actually yeah. physically training. Even by the other ones, were really impressive. Yeah. When coming in, kind of just within a day of the, these others, it's incredible. And the the guys who were closest to Atlantic Flyers, they like as you said, they're four. Elite RAF pilots, yeah. as you say. Um, <laughs> uh, they'll hear me say that. Uh, but um, they, yeah, they only just pipped us. And I think if it hadn't have been for the wind shifted from, oh, was it the southeast to the northeast, it may have been a different result. Yeah, actually. because it was so close oh, for was ages, close, wasn't yeah. it? It was the last night, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We were neck and neck uh-huh. last night. But I think, I think we, we surprised ourselves, actually. Mm-hmm. I still I still struggle to summing up how I feel about coming third, actually. Um, but I think in Lagomera, 
people just ignored us in a way. Like it was, it's like they didn't not ignored us. They, they, I didn't think they put us in a in a in as being as competitive as what we were. Uh, okay. Like it was, we were still like painting on the boat in Nagamera and like <laughs> uh, fixing. I think a lot of people looked at our boat and go, "There's a lot of work to do there." But <laughs> the thing is, we knew we knew all the stuff we needed to do. Yeah. And, like we put our inspection back to the last point possible almost because we wanted to do everything properly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we weren't that stressed about it, but I think a lot of people were like, goodness, they'll, you know, not be competitive or something, but... And have you sold the boat yet? Yeah, so we should give a plug to another Edinburgh team. I've really? taken it on, actually, um, Atlantic Body and Soul. Oh, they're not from Portobello, are yeah, they? Portobello, yeah, Portobello, yeah. Do you know, yeah, I did, do you know, somebody was mentioning, asking me if, if this was the team, and I went, no, 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 that that's... You were like from North Berwick and you've definitely done the Scottish team, so this must be next. Yeah, so yes. these guys have got an entry for um, this year coming. Uh, it's quite a funny story behind it, like there. So we row in coastal skiff rowing, and they are our like arch nemesis in terms of. Oh, uh, is that right? So and they've got a five-person crew or five-man crew again, and they've bought our boats, and I think they're absolutely gunning for our time. But yeah, they'll be. I think they'll be a good crew. They're. So they're mid uh, the panic of funding and trying to make it all happen right now. Um, but they're doing well. Because so. who had the boats? Was it Broad Brothers? That's right, yeah. yeah. And where did they come in last They came time? third as well, did actually. They? Yeah. That boat just had two third places. Um, so it's suddenly they're crossing three times now. I think it was a fifth place and there's now two thirds. So uh, Atlantic Body and Soul have uh, lots to live up to for us. They certainly do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good luck to them. It's been great catching up, hearing all about it. So thanks very much. I'm Gillian Semler. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to the Let's Talk channel on all the usual platforms, including Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud, as well as on citylets.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And also let your friends know where to find us. Let's Talk is a dedicated property show providing insight into the world of property letting. More information on today's show can always be found on our show notes along with this podcast. If you want to get in touch, just reach out. Let's talk at citylets.co.uk. Thank you.